Good morning. This Sunday we are closing out our sermon series, Is It Just Me?, with the light and easy topic of shame. So we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 1, select verses between verse 1 and 18. Listen now for a word from the Lord. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now Elkanah used to go up year by year from his town to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife and sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And Hannah's rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So Hannah would weep and not eat. After the family had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed and praying to God, weeping bitterly. And she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me. Not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a child. Then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall neither drink wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall cut his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. For Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring myself out before the Lord. So do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. And then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grants you the petitions you have made. And Hannah said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then Hannah went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So when I was 15 years old, I took a good long walk with shame. It was shortly after I received my learner's permit, but before I had my driver's license. And in Kansas, there's this period of time where you can drive to school and to work and to church by yourself before you get your driver's license. So it was in that season. My brother and I were on our way to youth group on a Sunday night, and I realized that I needed to get gas. 
Now, out of the list of things that parents get nervous about when it comes to their kids driving, getting gas is not super high on the list. We get nervous about highway driving, driving in the rain, rush hour traffic. I don't even have kids, and I get nervous about that for our youth. However, you don't hear parents say very often, gosh, I'm just so nervous. She's going to have to get gas today. I mean, how hard can it be? You pull up to the pump, you open the little door, you fill your tank up, and you keep moving. Easy, right? Well, you would think so. Unfortunately, the first time I got gas, it did not go quite as smoothly. I remember I was on the phone with a friend, and I was running late to youth group. I remember my brother stayed in the car because it was cold, and I remember looking at the four handles on the gas pump and thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure my mom uses the green one. I'll use that. Yeah, so some of you have had your coffee today, and you know what's coming. So I pinch the phone to my shoulder, and I grab the far left handle, and I turn around, and I try to fill up the tank. Now, the first red flag should have been that the pump handle did not fit in my car. So I looked around to see if there were any adults that I could glean wisdom from. And seeing none, I decided to make the genius executive decision to just hold very still and continue filling up my car. So I got back in the car, and I turned it on. And I continued the drive to church, and within a block, the steering wheel started shaking. And then the hood was smoking. And then, just about as quickly, I realized that I no longer had control over the brake or the acceleration. We're in Kansas City. There are stoplights, like every 10 feet. So my gold minivan goes catapulting through a red light, horn blaring, And thanks be to God for the Kansas City Hills, we eventually slowed down and coasted into a parking lot. Heart beating fast, I call my dad and I say, Dad, the minivan broke and it was awful, but don't worry, I was very brave. (laughs) My father is on the other line and he's already interjecting, asking questions. What do you mean the minivan broke? Where are you? What happened? Is your brother with you? Are you okay? And I answer all the questions again, reiterating how heroic I was. And then my dad figures it out. And he says, Sarah, did you just get gas? And there's a sinking feeling in my stomach. And I say, maybe. And he said, Sarah, you put diesel in your car. My younger brother heard it on the speakerphone and says, good job, genius. You just paid premium to destroy your car. And cue the shame. So my brother and I ended up walking to church that night. We got there late, and by the time we had arrived, I made him swear up and down the boulevard that he would not tell anyone what I had done, because that's how shame works. Shame is the great disconnector. 
Shame is that voice that whispers in your head, do not say this out loud. If you speak it, you might end up alone. Shame is what writer and researcher Brene Brown describes as the master emotion. It is defined as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And there are thousands of things that can trigger us to throw in the rink with shame. For men, those triggers often involve failure or a fear of displaying emotion, a fear of appearing weak. For women, shame can often be associated with being rejected or feeling as if we are not enough. Now, these are not universal triggers, but what is universal is that we all feel shame. If you feel empathy, research shows you feel shame too. And it's important to note that shame is different from guilt or embarrassment Shame is wrapped up in our identity, whereas guilt is wrapped up in behavior. So guilt is, you lied. Shame is, you are a liar. Guilt is, oops, you put diesel in your car. Shame is, you're not smart and you're a terrible driver. Shame is a direct blow to our identity, telling us that we aren't worthy of love or belonging, which is what makes it the very thing that drives disconnection. For when we feel ashamed, we're more likely than ever to draw into ourselves, to build up walls, and to avoid addressing the thing causing us pain. That's why there are stories of people losing their jobs and not telling their partners for weeks. And that's why sometimes we opt not to ask for help even if we need it. And that's why I made my brother swear to keep a secret. Shame is the great disconnector. We see this truth in our text for today, the way shame drives separation. Our text today focuses on a woman named Hannah who is certainly familiar with shame. For the first thing we learn about Hannah is that she is married to a man named Elkanah, and she has been unable to have children. Now, it doesn't take a genius to assume that Hannah's inability to have children has been painful for her. Women of every time and space have been taught that our bodies are designed for childbearing. And when that is not an option or when that is not a desire, it's nearly impossible to not feel shame or to not experience shame from others. So we have a woman. Her name is Hannah. She lives in a world where it's her one job to have a child and she is unable to do so. And every year, Hannah's family goes to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. And every year, Hannah leaves her family's side to go and pray by herself. And this prayer is silent. The text actually lifts this detail up twice. First, it says, Hannah was praying silently. And then, as if we Presbyterians aren't familiar with silent prayer, it says it again. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. This detail is worth noting because 
people in that day and age were extremely suspicious of silent prayer. The thought was, if you wanted God to hear your prayers, then you better speak them out loud. And if you were praying to yourself, then the concern was that there might be something unholy about your prayers that you are trying to hide. So there was great suspicion. And despite this, Hannah prays silently. And I can only assume that that comes out of a desire to keep her shame to herself. It sounds to me like that small voice that says, you better not speak this out loud. If you do, you might be alone. So Hannah is alone in the temple, away from her family in a city that is unfamiliar. She is praying to herself, but instead of lifting up prayers and in a community that could pray alongside with and for her, she does so silently. And all of these variables point to the fact that shame drives disconnection. For there's no family with her. She's not sharing her grief with her husband. She's not praying in community. She's alone. That is until Eli shows up. So Eli is the priest in the temple while Hannah is praying, and Eli sees Hannah praying silently to herself, and in the least pastoral response recorded in all of history, Eli walks up to her and asks her if she's drunk. Smooth, right? Good job, Eli. However, fortunately for Eli, Hannah offers him a chance to redeem himself. Hannah explains her situation. She says, I am a woman in deep trouble. I have been pouring out my soul to the Lord. I have been speaking with great anxiety all this time. Hannah paints a picture of her shame. She doesn't go into detail, but she doesn't hold back either. And fortunately, Eli gets it right this time. Fortunately, Eli seems to recognize the shame she's carrying. He didn't see it at first, but now he sees it and he responds with grace. And he says, go in peace. And may God grant you your request. This is a powerful moment to me because it's a moment of connection and honesty in a sea of disconnection and shame for Hannah. And what makes it even more powerful to me is the fact that Eli didn't get it right the first time, but he tried again. And the fact that the next thing we hear about Hannah is that she is returning home to her family, that they eat a meal together, and that she's not recorded crying anymore. Now, I cannot assume that this one back-and-forth conversation with a priest in the temple changed Hannah for all time, but I do wonder if this moment of connection served as a moment of refuge in the midst of a storm. And I do wonder if this is our job as people of faith, to resist the temptation to disconnect in the face of shame and to offer opportunities and grace for connection to those around us. So how do we do that? 
I don't have easy answers, but I do have one idea of what not to do. One of the greatest blessings about being in seminary is it tends to be one of the most diverse communities you can be a part of. It's racially diverse, ethnically diverse, denominationally diverse, people of all different ages and stages of life. It's beautiful. And I remember my very first semester in seminary, I was in a small seminar class that sat with our chairs in a circle, the teacher at the front. I don't remember the details of that day, but I remember we had been having an engaging discussion on race. And my professor brought up the Sankofa. A Sankofa is a beautiful Ghanaian symbol of a bird looking backwards over its shoulder. It is commonly used in African cultures to express the value of reaching back to knowledge gained in the past and bringing it into the present in order to make positive progress. Now, at this point in my seminary journey, I had heard the Sankofa a few times. I was familiar with it. However, when my teacher turned and looked directly at me and said, Sarah, what is the significance of the Sankofa? I froze. You see, I had heard dozens of times before that it was unhelpful for white people to speak on behalf of African-American people in our nation because when we do, we rob the narrative. As a result, one of my main learnings as a person with white privilege that it has been a whole lot more important that I listen more than I speak. So when my professor turned to me to ask what the Sankofa symbolized, I panicked. And I thought, surely this must be one of those moments, one of those moments where it's my job to listen more than to speak. And so in an instinct, I turned and looked at the African-American student sitting to my right. And without hesitation, my classmate said back, I cannot believe you just looked at me because I'm black. I felt as if I had been punched in the gut. And she was right. That is what had happened. My intention and hope was to pass the mic, to do more listening than speaking, to be aware that I have no historical roots to Ghana and that there are people in this space that love and cherish this symbol. However, as positive as my intention had been, My action had made my classmate, who I deeply respected, feel tokenized. And in front of the whole class, I had been called on the carpet for my mistake. So I immediately apologized and tried to answer the question, but it was too late. My throat was tight. I was blinking back tears. You know that feeling. It's shame. The damage had been done. And it left such an impact on me that I did not voluntarily raise my hand to speak about a matter related to race in class until the semester I graduated. That didn't mean that I didn't care. That didn't mean that I wasn't listening. It didn't mean that I wasn't invested. I certainly was. But shame is the great disconnector. And I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing that I thought it would be better if I remove myself from the conversation altogether. 
I tell you this story. It's not a story I'm proud of. But I tell you this story because shame tells us to build up walls. Shame will tell us to go through the storm alone, to pray silently instead of with community, to swear up and down the boulevard that you won't tell a soul. Shame will tell us to avoid hard conversations altogether, choosing to disconnect and be safe rather than connect and deal with the possibility of saying the wrong thing and being ashamed. However, what I have learned is that our job of, as people of faith is to choose connection. I think our job as people of faith is to resist the temptation to disconnect in the face of shame and to do our best to offer empathy and grace and opportunities for connection to those around us. And that will be hard. And it will require grace. And it will require some of Hannah's strength, but I think that is our job. For we cannot expect to grow in our interpersonal relationships unless we're willing to be honest about the things we carry shame around. Whether that's job performance, infertility, mental health, addiction. And we certainly cannot be the church in the world unless we're willing to deal with shame. Because under every conversation about race is a conversation about privilege, and we can't talk about privilege without talking about shame. And under every conversation about the environment is a conversation around complacency, and we can't talk about complacency without talking about shame. And under every conversation about our reputation as a church is a conversation about our historical choice to exclude And we can't admit that without a conversation around shame. We, as people of faith, are called to wrestle with shame because there is no more room in this world for disconnection. We have to claim it and talk about it, personally and as an institution. I think if we want to be the church in the world, we have to start here. So that night, I filled up my car with diesel. My brother and I had to catch a ride home with friends. We left that atrocious gold minivan in the parking lot. And when I got home, I remember my dad was in his office reading, and I kicked off my shoes by the back door and quietly walked up the stairs and eventually went and sat on the ottoman in his office And before he could even say a word, I just started crying. I expected a reprimand. I expected a go to your room and think about what you've done, that disconnected shame. But instead, what I got was fierce love. My dad said to me, Sarah, at the end of the day, all that matters to me when it comes to your car is that you are safe. A car is just a thing. It will be fine. And Google told me that you can siphon diesel out. (laughs) What matters to me is that you are okay because I love you. And for the first time that night, I lifted my head and was able to have eye contact with the man that raised me. 
Friends, shame is the driving force that prevents us from relating fully to one another. And it is the driving force that prevents us from addressing so many of the world's most urgent needs. However, when shame is met with empathy, with a, it's going to be okay, I love you, or with a go in peace and may it be so, then shame does not have ground to stand on. So if we want to be God's church in the world, if we want to be people with authentic and meaningful relationships, and if we want to be a church that is challenging some of the world's most pressing issues, then may we take a lesson from Hannah and Eli. Like Hannah, may we be brave enough to speak our truth. And like Eli, may we learn to offer grace and connection, even if we get it wrong the first time. It will not be easy. It will be messy. But I am confident that the Holy Spirit will keep guiding us home. Friends, pray with me. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.